As Christians, there's nothing more vital than celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This Easter, listen in as Pastor Chris Chadwick presents messages for Easter 2023. As we come to... 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, Paul, the guy that wrote this letter, uh, the Bible people often say is a book. The Bible is not a book. It's really a collection of books. Uh, it's a collection of 66 different books by 40 different authors written over a period of 1,500 years. This is a really cool thing about the Bible. Um, it was written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, on three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. Uh, it was written by a divergent authorship. That's a big theological way of saying the dudes had different jobs. There were kings, there were priests, there were prophets, there were farmers, there were fishermen, uh, there were even lawyers and guys that worked for the IRS. Jesus can save tax collectors. You just need to know, if he can do that, he can save anybody. You might say, my sin's greater. You're not a tax collector, you're good. But if you are a tax collector, we have special rooms for you. Um, they're really small and hot. No, I'm totally teasing, I'm totally teasing. They were, they were a different view or a different authorship, uh, different guys that different authored. And there's one central theme in all of the Bible, that's Jesus Christ and him dying on the cross of Calvary for our sins. And over that 1,500-year period, most of the men didn't get to read the other men's works, and yet there's not one contradiction in the entirety of the Bible. Why is that? Well, we believe this with all of our heart, that the Bible is inspired by God. That word inspired means God breathed, that God literally breathed his word into existence through the pen and personality of the authors that wrote it. And one of the guys is a guy named Paul. He was an attorney. He was a persecutor of the church. He was a guy who hated Jesus and he hated Christians passionately. He wanted to see the church destroyed and he wanted to see Christians destroyed. He would arrest Christians, he would threaten Christians and the Bible says he even had some killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. But one day he was walking to this place called Damascus. He was walking from Jerusalem, Damascus in Syria and he's walking there to persecute Christians and on the way to Damascus the Apostle Paul the author of this book has an encounter with Jesus Christ and his encounter with Jesus Christ changed everything about his life everything about his eternity you say why is that because would you listen to me clearly Jesus changes everything yeah. matter of fact would you look at somebody next to you and say Jesus changes everything now, you just said that like, like it's freshman year biology and you're sitting next to a girl that you like or a dude that you like. Like, I don't want to say it too excited. Now, if you're a Christian, look at somebody and say, Jesus changes everything. Yeah, Jesus does change everything. And the Apostle Paul's life was completely changed. And he's writing this church at Corinth and he's talking to them. I'm getting signals from, would you come and correct me? I don't know what you're doing. He's like telling me to pitch a fast pitch or something. What are you, what, what's going on? We have a green room for him to do that, but he waits till he gets out here. Anything else I need to do? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's great. You guys pray for us. He's getting fired tomorrow. Um, um, what was I, was I talking about the Bible or baseball? I wasn't, the Apostle Paul, yeah, thanks. The Apostle Paul, uh, he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and it changes everything about his life, everything about what goes on in life. And um, his world is forever changed. And he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this passage that is so helpful to us. And I want you to notice in verse number one, where it says, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye received, and wherein ye stand. Paul makes this statement. I declared, I want to make known this gospel, this good news that I preached or proclaimed unto you. The apostle Paul is writing a letter that is very, very personal. It's very practical and it's very helpful. And it's helpful to us. And this morning, I'm beginning a series entitled Assurance. 
It's a series on how you can know, just like the Apostle Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15, how you can know without any doubt at all in your heart and mind that you are saved, you have eternal life. We call it from a theological perspective, eternal security or assurance of salvation. And so I've titled this series, Assurance, Finding Hope in God's Promises. Because here's what I understand emphatically. If you're not sure that when you died, you'd go to heaven, your life is going to be in consistent turmoil, consistent doubt, constant frustration, constant irritation, hoping, praying, wishing that things would work out well, when in reality, Jesus says this, the Bible says this, Paul says this, you can know without a doubt that when you die, heaven will be your home, which is why I titled today's message, You Can. My kids, I got two daughters. Uh, my daughter, Judith, is 26. She lives in Kailua, Hawaii. It's in the beautiful side of Oahu. Not that Waikiki is not nice, but it's like L.A., Super busy, it's beautiful nonetheless, but it's, it's like L.A., super busy. My daughter lives on the other side of the island and uh, right next to Kaneohe in a little community called Kailua, and uh, she's there and, and 26 years old, awesome. Her name's Judith, talked to her yesterday, I'll talk to her today. Talk to her just about every day um, and love it to death. My other daughter is Natalie, she's 24 years old, I've got two daughters, and Natalie lives up in Lancaster, California, the armpit of the world. If you want to find the worst place in the world to live, go to Lancaster. You've just found it. You don't even have to drive very far. It's three hours away. You'll never want to live there. The high desert, windy, hot, stuff blows in your eyes all the time. That's where my daughter Natalie lives. She works at a Bible college there. She teaches in the, leads the graphics department, teaches in the graphics department there. Awesome kids. I love them both. My daughters, when they were small, I loved their age. I loved the age between like six and 11. Those were the best ages ever. You say, why 6 and 11? Because eventually they turned 12. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about when they turn 12, just wait. But I can tell you on authority that life changes in the mind of a kid when they turn 12. And where dad and mom used to be the coolest people on the planet between 6 and 11, somewhere around 12, something happens. And, and, and they begin to think dad is less cool than he used to be. And, and, and where they used to think that you were the funniest guy on the planet, now they're just kind of mortified at your jokes. One time I was in Spokane, Washington. I was on a sabbatical and, and uh, I was going up there. I was up there for three weeks by myself and then Debbie came up for a week and then Judith and Natalie came up. So I hadn't seen him in like five weeks and I showed up at the airport dressed like a German tourist. I had suspenders on and shorts on and high socks and dress shoes and really dorky looking glasses and my hair parted down the middle and I showed up at the airport with a big giant sign and uh, as they came off the plane, I'm just cheering at the top of my lungs and Judith and Natalie come off the plane kind of excited to see us and as soon as they see me, I'm not exaggerating when they were like, no, and they tried to run the other way but they wouldn't let them back in because of TSA, praise God for TSA for the first time ever. And they just had to sit there. They're like, still to this day, they're like, that's the worst joke you ever played. I said, joke? That wasn't a joke. I was really happy to see you. Dad, you looked like an idiot. I said, well, I'm sorry. Not really. And, but, but before that, that age of 12, they would have thought that was hilarious. When they were younger, people at our church always used to ask me, Pastor, can we take your kids? We have people that do fun stuff and things like that. Uh, not that I didn't do fun stuff, but I'm not as fun as the you know people that aren't their dad. And they'd say, hey, we're going hiking, or we're going camping, or we're doing this. And, and they would come and say, hey, can we take Judith and Natalie with us? And Judith and Natalie would be staring at me like this, and they would say, Dad, can we, can we, can we, can we, can we? And even if they weren't verbalizing it, you know the feeling when your kids are like, bouncing around and kind of jumping at their feet and spinning around in circles like a puppy that's getting a treat. And, and that, they were doing that. And I would always look at them when I wanted to make a positive, affirmative statement to them. And I would say this, you can. When I said you can, it changed the tenor of the day and it added a measure of security to them 
that they did not previously have. They were wondering before I said that, will we get to do this? And when I said you can, it settled everything. The Apostle Paul is writing here a group of people who were just like you. Matter of fact, they're in a city that's very similar to the city of San Diego. Corinth was a very wealthy city in its day. We're a very wealthy city. Corinth was a port city. They had a lot of of sailing traffic in it. We are a port city. Now, most of our port work has to deal with the military and and the four or three or four bases that we have on the water here. Most of ours is that way. Theirs was more commercial. But they were a port city. We're a port city. It was a very popular tourist destination. We're a very popular tourist destination. They were known for their athletics. San Diego is known for being one of the most fit cities in the world, and we have an Olympic training center here. We're a very athletic city. Uh, The city of Corinth was known for their parties. The city of San Diego is known for the gas lamp area, and San Diego State, we're known for our parties. It was, in many ways, a very wicked city, and in many ways, the city of San Diego is a wicked city. There's a lot of parallels between the two. And Paul is writing a group of people in our text and he is declaring unto them that they can know without a doubt that they have eternal life. Notice what he says in verse number one again. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. I've delivered this news to you. I've made known this news to you. Well, what is this news? Verse number two. By which also ye are saved. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. He uses this word saved. Now, if you pick up or a book or a modern day book or you listen to or watch a, a movie, you might hear people ridicule or make fun of that word saved. The word saved is a Bible word that means to be delivered from danger or delivered from destruction. Paul is saying this, you can know that you're eternally delivered from destruction. You can know that you're eternally delivered from danger unless you believed in vain. Unless you believe, verse number two, and the whole point of your believing was just to uh, accomplish something in your life. You can know that you are saved, because it's a Bible word, we'll use it, that you're saved unless you were just pretending to have put your faith and trust in Christ. Verse number three. For I declare unto you, first of all, that which I also received. Paul says, I'm I'm telling you what I received. This isn't theoretical for me. Paul's saying, this is very practical for me. I've received what I'm telling you. I heard it and I believe it. On the road to Damascus, this became very real to me. Paul's saying that I've received what I'm about to tell you. Well, what am I about to tell you? Verse number three, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. See, here's the reality. Christ died for our sins. Well, what do you mean? Are you saying I'm a sinner? I'm not saying you're a sinner. God is. But yes, you're a sinner. And so am I. And Christ died for our sins in accordance with what the Old Testament said some 2,000 to 750 years prior. Well, Pastor, are you really saying I'm Yeah, I'm saying you're a sinner. I'm saying every single one of us in this room understands we've done wrong. There's not a person in this room that's going, no, I think I'm perfect. Now, you might say, I don't think I need Jesus, or I don't think I have to repent of my sin, or I don't think, but there's not a person in this room that thinks that they're without error or they're without problem. Every single one of us in this room understand this fundamental reality. We have sinned, erred against God. There's a universal moral law, the Bible says in Romans chapter 1, that's written on the heart of all mankind. This universal moral law that's written on the heart of all mankind tells us things like it's wrong to kill three-year-old girls anywhere in the world at any time. That's just wrong. 
We know that it's wrong universally to lie, to cheat, to steal. That's why people even who deny God, who would call themselves atheists, we met this week a guy when we were out putting flyers on many of your doors, many of you came because you got a flyer in your door. When we were out putting flyers on doors this week, one of our uh, ministry staff met a guy who said, I don't really want one, just so you know, I'm a radical atheist. Radical atheists still believe in a universal moral law that says it's wrong to lie, it's wrong to cheat, it's wrong to commit adultery, it's written on the heart of man, whether you believe the Bible or not, you understand that you cannot live a perfect life. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. Just like the Bible said. Verse number four. Now we're getting to the good stuff. And he was buried and rose again the third day just like the scripture said, and he did it under his own power, under his own power. And that question, folks, changes everything. Did Jesus really rise from the grave? If he did, it changes everything. If he didn't, it's an utter waste of time. Matter of fact, we see in our text this morning, the apostle Paul is establishing, he's established what the gospel is, but now he wants to give credence to the message of the gospel. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus loves you, he died for you, and if you will put your faith and trust in him, he promises to give you eternal life. If you will trust Jesus as your savior, he will give you eternal life. And Paul says, before you just believe that based on what I say, I want you to notice the resurrection, and here's what Paul is saying in verses 5 to 10. I want you to notice the validity of the resurrection. Notice what he says in verse number 5. That he was seen of Cephas after he rose from the grave. Then of the 12, the 12 apostles. And that he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some have fallen asleep. Cephas is Peter. He was kind of the spokesman for the disciples. He says, guys, you need to understand this. Church at Corinth, you need to understand this. When I talk about the gospel and the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the question, did Jesus really rise from the grave? Before you blow that off and think it's no big deal, you need to understand that Jesus was seen of Peter. His most prominent follower, but also the guy who denied Christ three times and it was well known to everybody. And it changed Peter's life. He was then seen of the 12 apostles. And he was finally seen of 500 brethren at one time. Now, in that day, in that era, they would not allow women to testify in court. So Paul's just talking about 500 dudes that he, they saw him at once. But there were probably an equal number, if not more, ladies that saw him. Now, in our day, we would obviously have ladies be able to testify. Let me tell you, if it's our church male staff members or our female staff members, I want the ladies testifying. These guys are liars. <laughs> I lie all day long. I'm obviously teasing. But they didn't, they didn't allow that. But, but you could argue that Jesus was seen by about 1,100 different people at one time. At one time. So there's a validity to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if, if, you, if I see you go into a store, or let's rephrase it. If you see me go into a store and um, you see me uh, grab an iPhone and throw it in my pocket and walk out, uh, and you run to the management and say, hey, I saw Chris steal an iPhone, put it in his pocket and walk out, and they come up to me and, and I've already taken all the stickers off and everything. I'm like, no, this is my iPhone. And I'm sure that you techno guys would be like, oh, there's a way we could find out. Okay, go back to your basement for a minute and just work with the illustration, all right? You get what I'm saying. And, and I take the iPhone and you're like, and you're like that's, that's theirs. And I'm like, no, it's mine. It's theirs. No, it's mine. But then somebody else comes up and they say, um, uh, store manager, I, I need to tell you something as well. I saw him steal that too. 
oh, you saw him steal that as well? Yeah, and then another person comes, and then 15 people come, and then before long, a thousand people are standing outside the iPhone store, and they say, Chris stole that iPhone. Guess what's happening? In California, nothing. But normally, normally, I'm going to end up going to jail for theft, Why? Because a thousand people testified that they saw me do that, that they saw me steal something, that they saw me take something that didn't belong to mine, and a thousand eyewitnesses give credibility, and the preponderance of the evidence proves what I did. And if a thousand people saw Jesus, and this is what Paul is saying, look at it, verse number six, and the greater part or most of them remain or are still alive unto this day. Some of them have fallen asleep, but most of them are still alive. Not only are they eyewitnesses, they're eyewitnesses that you can go to and you can talk to them even today. And there's a greater point about the validity of the resurrection. If you wanted to destroy Christianity or end Christianity, all you had to do was to find the body of Jesus. You find the body of Jesus, every claim in the Bible is nullified. Every claim about Jesus is nullified. Why? Because the Bible says he would rise from the grave. And here's God's standard. If I'm wrong in one point, I'm wrong in every point. And so if you could find the body of Jesus, make no mistake. Christianity has lost all its validity. Now here's what some folks will say. Well, his disciples came and they stole his body. Now, you got to remember, the disciples were a disorganized group of pompous, arrogant jerks. That's really what they were. We could, I, I thought about titling the series one time, The Jerks of the Bible, but my wife said that that would be a self-proclamation, so I didn't do it. But the disciples often just messed up. And they never messed up more than when they denied Jesus at the cross. They've walked away from Christ when he's in the tomb. But let's just argue for a minute that that didn't happen. And they were an organized group of 11 men, of tax collectors, of attorneys, of fishermen, of agriculture workers. That's who they are. Now, we know, according to the scripture and history, that Jesus' tomb was guarded by 16 Roman guards in shifts over a period of three days. Because they didn't want the disciples to steal the body of Christ. And the Roman guards had to guard the body of Christ with their life. If they lost the body of Christ, and there was only one way out. I've been in the tomb. You could not pierce through the backside. There's only one door in the front. And the Roman guards are there. And they're watching. And they're literally watching for their life. If they lose Jesus, they lose their life. If they lose the body. And there's 16 of them. And they're literally the best trained fighters in Palestine. And they've got shields and they've got swords and they've got slingshots. They've got all kinds of stuff. And these 11 disciples are going to take them out with fishing hooks? What are they going to bait those hooks with? It would be tantamount to us saying this. Uh, Pastor Bernie, the guy who likes to interrupt church, and I, and Peter Garza, Zane Garza, the guy who gave the announcement, skinniest dude I know, and Garza and John Shivas, the guy who's playing the guitar, if the four of us go up against eight well-trained Navy SEALs, Truth be told, we have a lot of Navy SEALs in our church. I've seen them. I ain't scared. <laughs> I'd just be dead. Go up against those guys. We'd go up. We would be so disorganized. Bernie would run around in a circle. He'd try to talk them into submission. Uh, John would grab Zane. Zane's so skinny. John would try to use Zane as a spear. Um, 
I would be over in the corner in quiet contemplative prayer awaiting my Jesus. No, I, I would be out front probably dead. There's zero chance of us being able to do that. And here's what the disciples would have had to do. They would have had to beat every one of those uh, Roman guards uh, to unconsciousness without ever touching their bodies. Literally. Now, if you're a child of the 80s, you watched Crocodile Dundee. You remember when Crocodile Dundee would come up and he would punch people without touching them? Like he'd just come up and they'd be like, oh, they'd just pass out. What are you telling me? That happened? You say, Pastor, you're making a bigger point of this than it is. No, no, no. If you deny the resurrection, you're denying some major obvious truth. And the validity of the resurrection is expressed in this great fundamental point that if you want to rid the world of, G of Christianity back in this day, if you want to rid the world of Christianity, find his body. Get rid of the witnesses. But Jesus did die. And Jesus did rise from the grave. And here's what we understand. Not just the validity of the resurrection, but the apostle Paul goes on in verse number 12, and he deals with the message of the resurrection. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you there is no resurrection of the dead? There were some that were saying there'll be no resurrection. They were talking about their physical bodies. They were talking about the body of Jesus Christ. In, in their life. How say some among you, there is no resurrection from the dead. For if there be, verse number 13, no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is your preaching in vain and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he raised not up. If so be that the dead rise not. Not understanding and disbelieving the resurrection of the human body was a problem for many in Paul's day, and it's a problem for us. And Paul deals with four consequences of denying the resurrection. In verse number 13, if there is no resurrection, then Christ isn't raised. And Christ is still dead. If there is no resurrection, verse number 14, then our preaching is vain. Our, our message is pointless. The word vain means empty, devoid of advantage. If there is no resurrection, then our message is pointless. And not only is our message pointless, look at verse number 14, your faith is also vain. Your faith in Christ is devoid of any advantage. There's no benefit to being a believer if there is no resurrection. And verse number 15, and we are found false witnesses of God because we testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he raised not up. The apostle Paul says, and we're liars. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're liars. We're false witnesses. We've testified falsely of what's gone on <clears throat> And, and we're liars if there is no resurrection. Paul is testifying to the reality that he saw Christ. But he doesn't stomp the consequences there. He continues on. And there's a second set of consequences that we see in verse number 16 to verse number 19. If Christ be not raised, or, or if the dead rise not rather, then is Christ not raised. Now, in Hebrew writing, there was no opportunity for an exclamation point. When we want to draw emphasis to something, we draw an exclamation point at the end of the sentence. Today, we highlight stuff. Today, we underline, we italicize, we, we make it its own special screen. We do whatever, and we do all of that here to draw emphasis. In Paul's day, they reiterated a point to make it more powerful and, and, and more noticeable. And if there is no resurrection, then Christ is still dead. That's what he's saying. This argument has massive theological implications. Christ, the very Son of God, is still dead. Not only that, look at verse 17 of our text. If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and you're yet in your sins. Your faith is pointless, empty. There's nothing to back your faith up. And you're still without hope in your sin. See, here's what some people say. Well, I just won't believe in Jesus and it's good. 
No, no, if you don't believe in Jesus, you still have to pay the price for your sin. There's still a consequence for your sin. Ignoring Jesus doesn't divorce you from the consequences of sin. You, you don't get out, a, you don't get a, a get out of jail free card because you denied Christ. You still face the consequences of sin and the eternal punishment of sin. Ignoring Jesus doesn't change any of that. None of it. And that's why Paul says your faith is vain or empty. There's nothing to back your faith up and you're still in your sin. If you deny the resurrection, if you deny Jesus Christ, it won't change the the, the eternality of hell at all. You'll still die and spend eternity in hell. Verse number 18, another consequence. Believers are perished and they too are in hell. In verse number 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men most miserable. Most miserable means we're worthy of pity. We're full of misery. We endure great suffering. If as a believer, I put my faith and trust in Christ and Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then I'm to be pitied above anybody else on the planet. Why? Because I believe in the faith, I believe in the resurrection. I put my faith in the resurrection. I put my faith in Jesus Christ. We sang about it, glorious day when we see the Lord. If there is none of this, then then it's not like Jesus just made my life better. Absolutely not. I'm to be pitied above everybody else. Well, why? Well, there's five thoughts. Because the believers are to be pitied because they would be hoping in a false belief and philosophy. They're believing a lie because believers, secondly, are expecting in the supernatural power of God to help them through the trials of life, and he's not there to help them. No resurrection, no power. No Jesus, no resurrection, no help because the righteousness, number three, and strength of a godly lifestyle of believers is misunderstood and often opposed and we're often ridiculed for our life and our lifestyle, then we suffer for a Christ that is not the Messiah. If there's no resurrection, there's no hope for salvation and eternal life. The believer is literally suffering for nothing. And we're to be pitied most because true believers deny themselves giving up and sacrificing all that we have in order to reach and minister to a world in desperate need of the gospel and there is no gospel there is no resurrection and the author the apostle Paul why would he endure all of this before Paul became a Christian he was a very wealthy very prominent attorney in Israel Considered to be the future head of the Sanhedrin. Some Bible historians say that Paul would probably have been worth, by the time he was about 45 years old, worth about 10 to $20 million in modern day funds. And, and the apostle Paul gave all of that up when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, not only did he give it up, but he had been married. And it seems as though, we don't have uh, 100% assurance of this, but it seems as though that his wife had a funeral for him and considered him dead. His parents had a funeral for him and considered him dead. His friends rejected him. His, his, co- his co-workers absolutely shunned him. He lost everything, but he gained Jesus Christ. Christ. And he not only gained Christ, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, he says this, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in death often, of the Jews five times received I forty stripes save one, thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck, a day and a night have I been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of water, that just means near death experiences in water, in perils perils of robbers, uh, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watching often, in hunger and thirst, in fasting often, in cold and nakedness. 
why would he endure all that if the resurrection wasn't real? Why would he give up everything for this? People say, well, because he wanted power. What kind of power did the dude have? Seriously. He gave up everything to follow Christ. Why did he do all that? Look at verse number 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that sleep. He helps us to understand the message of the resurrection is the assurance of the resurrection. There's no doubt of the resurrection. Jesus is risen from the dead. That's why you're here. I'm here because a family member drugged me here. I'm here because my friend promised me good burritos after church. I'm here because they said you tell good jokes. We'll come back next week. I'm here and you could fill in the blank. No, you're here because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice verse 22. Uh, Verse 21. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. Adam is our, if you will, in the Bible, he's considered to be our earthly father. The father of all mankind. And because of Adam's sin, and most of you know the story where, or you've heard of it at least, where God created Adam and Eve and they're in the garden, a garden called Eden. And in the garden, there was this tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, you can have all the fruit of every tree in this entire garden, but the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, this this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can't eat that fruit. Some people call it an apple. It wasn't. Some people say it's grapes. It wasn't. It was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was durian. You'd have to be talked into eating that stuff. Uh, I'm kidding. It wasn't that either. It was the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And you know how Adam disobeyed God and he ate that. When Adam did that, we died spiritually. We meaning all mankind everywhere for all time. That's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse number 12, wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world, Adam, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Every man on the face of the earth, every woman on the face of the earth who has ever lived is a sinner, and because of your sin, you are separated from God eternally. And so am I. That's why the Bible says in verse 21 and verse number 22, in Adam all die. By man came death. But notice the contrast. Now, making contrast in the Bible is kind of like a repetition of words. It's intended to draw emphasis and exclamation to the point. So in Adam all die, now here's the contrast. Pay special attention to what he's saying. In Christ shall all be made alive. You're, a, you're born a sinner. You can't escape that. You didn't have a choice for it or against it. You're a sinner because your parents are sinners. It's just what happened to all of us. It's all equal for everyone. You're born in sin. But in Christ shall all be made Alive. Alive. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is a really important phrase. The word hope here means expectation. The word expectation. Let me rephrase it. Let me give you the accurate definition. The looking forward to of an expected end. It'd be like this. I hope to eat lunch today. Unless Jesus returns, it won't be long before there's food in this mouth. And if Jesus returns, I'll be eating food in heaven. So I have hope. It's expected. 
Most of us in here have a food plan for the day. Some of you have too much of a food plan for the day, like me. But we have hope. We have expected. A lively hope means that it's not a hope that's just based on circumstance. It's not a hope that's just based on tradition. It's not a hope that's just based on something that my parents taught me or told me. It's a hope that is, here's what it means, that is eternally alive just as Jesus Christ is alive. You say, how do you know that? Well, you notice the prepositional phrase that's following, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the hope is... Is, is being held up by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That just as Jesus was raised from the dead, make no mistake, believer, that we are saved according to the abundant mercy of God that has put inside of us a lively hope and we look forward to our resurrection just as Christ was resurrected from the dead. One of the worst places in all the world to be is without hope. You can do almost anything if you have hope. But without hope, man, you're in a terrible condition, aren't you? Hopelessness is one of the most difficult places to be. I've had people sit across from me in my office and say, it's hopeless, Pastor. The marriage is done. That's tough. It's hopeless, Pastor. His addiction is controlling him. It's hopeless, Pastor. They're never coming back home. Last year, I, I want you to see a picture of my mother-in-law. This is my mother-in-law. Her name is Judy. She's on the left. The beautiful woman in the middle is my wife. The hideously ugly man is my father-in-law. His name is Scary Jerry. No, his name is Jerry. He's a wonderful Christian brother. I love him to death. My mother-in-law is a very godly lady. I wish you could have seen her in her prime. I first met my mother-in-law 30-ish years ago, 30 years ago. Uh, she was 44 years old. She's one of the best Bible teachers I've ever seen in my life. She's amazing with children. I don't know how many people we have in here, about 300 people in here right now. And, and my mother-in-law could take a crowd of this many kids. I see a crowd of this many kids and I want to run and hide. But my mother-in-law could take a crowd of this many kids and just hold them spellbound in her hand. She was a, an amazing Bible teacher. She was great with ladies, but, but she was one of a kind when it came to working with kids. Loved children. She'd write songs and write stories and brought so many kids to Jesus and encouraged the faith of so many kids who today are serving Jesus in vocational ministry. I mean, she's, oh man, godly lady, godly lady. Last year, we got the call that nobody ever wants to get. She called Debbie, and she's kind of an eternal optimist, and, and she said, hey, um, she said these words, uh, the cancer's back, but I think I'm going to be okay. But truth be told, she's not okay. Matter of fact, she has stage four breast cancer. It's metastatic. It's from the top of her brain to the bottom of her feet. It's in every major joint of her body. And she's on hospice and palliative care. That's all that we're doing for her now. Matter of fact, this is what my mother-in-law kind of looks like today. Well, today, the other day, she was at Hobby Lobby and she was walking in and her legs just gave out and she doesn't have the um, kinesthetic awareness anymore to put her hands in front of her and she fell down flat on her face. Her face is just all purple and uh, it's just, I was going to show you that picture, but Debbie wouldn't let me because it really looks painful. It's hopeless. 
there's, there's, there's no means of healing. You say, well, God can do anything. He can, but we all have comfort and confidence that he's not gonna. So you've given up hope. No, we're just without it. Judy, she's a, <laughs> I wish I had time to tell you her story, but she grew up in the 60s. Well, I wish I had time. I have time. Um, she grew up in the 60s in Northern California. So she was like a hippie love child. Like she invented marijuana. She was, she grew up in an at best agnostic home. My wife's grandfather was agnostic. He died an agnostic. We know that he is in hell today because he rejected Jesus Christ. She grew up in that kind of a home, very stoic. Don't show emotion. Just live your life. And that's what she did. Just live your life. Try to find happiness in your life if you can. But if you can't find happiness, that's no big deal. Just don't say anything. Just endure. And then one day you'll die. It was her life. It was Judy. She moved from Northern California where she lived. And then she worked kind of at the capital of California in some congressman's office as a typist and stuff like that and, and, and administrative type stuff. And then she moved to Bakersfield, got a job there met my father-in-law, they got married, they had a beautiful daughter that I, 20 years later, married. But when Debbie was about a year old, a friend of Judy's invited her to a Bible study. Said, hey, why don't you come to a Bible study? And Judy said, no, no, I don't believe in that stuff. And her friend said, come on, it'll be great. You can ask questions. And Judy goes, I can ask questions? And she goes, the friend goes, yeah, you can ask questions. And she goes, I've got questions. And Judy is like, okay. And, and Judy went into the Bible study with an attempt to dissuade her friend from ever going back and following this false religion. I'm going to rescue my friend from this cult called Jesus so she could live her life. And Judy goes and she asks her questions and they answer questions and she asks her questions and they answer questions and she asks her questions and they answer her questions. And that goes on for several, several months. And she keeps asking and they keep answering and she keeps asking and they keep answering. And finally, one day, said to, one day somebody said to her, Judy, why don't you just accept Christ? He keeps asking all your questions or answering all your questions. Judy told me one time, I went home and I really began to think about it, that I haven't had a question Jesus can't answer. See, some of you think you're, you're able to resist God because you've got questions, but you've never asked anybody that can answer them. Because if you've got genuine questions about Jesus, there's genuine answers from Jesus. Now, if you're going to ask questions like, God, if you'll tell me why the sky is blue, I will trust you. Number one, if he told you, there's already answers to that. But if he told you, you wouldn't because that's not a sincere question. That's a sarcastic question. But if you have a sincere question, Jesus wants to answer your questions. And so Judy began to think about that. And then finally, one day, Judy said this, I just realized this. Jesus is the God he claimed to be. And she told me this, if he rose from the grave, it changes Friend, if he rose from the grave, it changes everything. Some of you are here today and you're like, I know I should become a Christian. I know I should become a Christian. I know I should become a Christian, but I just don't know. No, you should. Because he rose from the grave. And the resurrection changes everything. And salvation is truly not having every single question that you have answered. Salvation is putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And we don't believe Jesus simply because we can prove it scientifically because the Bible's not a science book. The Bible is a history book and we believe history based on the preponderance of the evidence. And the preponderance of the evidence overwhelmingly proves that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, 
that Jesus died for your sins on a cross called Calvary and that three days later he rose from the grave and if you will put your faith and trust in Christ, he promises to give you eternal life. But Chris, you don't know my sin. I don't know your sin and I don't need to know your sin because Jesus knows it. But let me tell you, I don't come from a pristine family. Well, I heard you say your dad was a pastor. Well, my dad was a pastor, but before that, my dad was an alcoholic by the time he was 17. Got drunk the first time at nine years old. My grandfather was one of the worst abusive men you've ever met in his life. My dad's brothers almost killed my grandfather. No, I'm not exaggerating. And got him out of the house, told him if he ever comes back, they would kill him. And there was no doubt that they would. I come from a long line of bootleggers. My brother was an addict for 20 years. I praise God today. My brother's celebrating the resurrection with about 30 kids in Miami, Florida as a ministry leader at his church in Florida because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My mother grew up in an abusive home without Christ. Matter of fact, my grandmother was an atheist who turned to Buddhism to try to find hope and was a constant Christ rejecter. But my mother, as a 24-year-old woman, put her faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and my entire life was transformed. My mom and my mom and dad today have three children who are faithfully serving Jesus with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And let me tell you, that's what Jesus wants to do in your life. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as Savior, trust Jesus today. Understand that you're a sinner. Understand that because of your sin, you are eternally separated from God in a place called hell. It's a literal place of eternal torment and suffering. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, left heaven because God loved you so much, came to this earth and died on a cross and if you will put your faith and trust in only Jesus, he promises, he guarantees on his name to give you eternal life and to prove that he is who he said he was, he rose from the grave. You can have assurance of salvation if you put your faith and trust in Christ. Why not do that today? I came to be encouraged. The greatest encouragement you ever have is putting your faith and trust in Christ. Do that today. Don't delay. Don't wait. Put your faith in Christ today. That gnawing that you have, that drawing that you feel, that tug on your soul today, that's Jesus saying, trust me. That's Jesus saying, come to me. That's Jesus saying, what he's saying is true because what he's saying is from the Bible. Put your faith in Jesus today. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd be with us during this time. Thank you for listening. Find more messages every week at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, join us for a service. We meet at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 p.m.